thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us, how much you care for us, that you are our protector and our, our peace provider. We ask you to guide us as we look in the scriptures today and see what you would have us to see. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First Kings chapter 8. Solomon in chapter 7 just finished the temple. And they talked about all the, how much gold they used, how much brass they used, and all of that. And now we're going to look at the dedication of the temple, starting at verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel unto King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the King Solomon at the feast of the in the month of Ethlamim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord in the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even the, those did the priest and the Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for the multitude. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant unto the Lord and to his place, into the oracle of the house and to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. And the cherubim spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves that the ends of the staves were seen out of the holy place before the oracle, and they were not seen without, and there they are unto this day. And there was nothing in the ark save two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. I'm going to stop there because there was probably way too much to keep us busy for the rest of the night. So... We look at here and it says Solomon assembled the elders, all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers, the children of Israel, of the children of Israel, unto himself in Jerusalem, that they might bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Now, if you remember, David had brought the Ark toward Jerusalem, and then uh, you uh, Uzziah reached out, touched it, was slain because he touched the ark, and, God, and David left it where it was at for three months. And that family was blessed, and then he finally brought it into Jerusalem. You remember that that was when he was dancing joyfully before the Lord, and, and uh, Michael's wife looked down, and you know, she criticized him because he was, you know, she accused, accused him of not being kingly. You know, you weren't in your royal garbs. You're out there dancing in front of all the women and making a fool of yourself. You weren't being royal. And if you recall, that what, her, what her punishment for that was was that she was left barren for the rest of her days. So she, got, she criticized David. She was premised. Uh, because David was celebrating God. And it doesn't tell us where in Jerusalem they put the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, because we read here that the tabernacle is also removed. But they're moving the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant from wherever it is in Jerusalem to the Temple Mount, which is Moriah, Golgotha, Calvary, uh, whatever you want, Temple Mount. It's got so many names in there. And so they're moving it from wherever it is in Jerusalem to its new location at the Temple. 
And we look at this, and he says, he, Solomon gets all the leaders. You know, he gets the heads of all the tribes. He gets all the, the, the fathers and the, the royalty of the, of the place. And he says, this is a celebration. And they come in. And then there's something in verse 2 that most, of the, most people are not really going to notice. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is in the seventh month. In the seventh month, they have the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles celebrates first and foremost the wandering in the wilderness. It is also predictive of the coming king. And so we have the Ark of the Covenant coming in to go into the temple, which is a picture of the king, king in its place. But the thing about this is it's one of the three feasts that all the Jewish men were to come to Jerusalem and worship God. So Solomon is moving the Ark of the Lord and the Tabernacle of the Lord to the temple on one of the big feast days of the Jews. Every male, 12 years or more, is to be in Jerusalem that week, that, that day. And that's the day Solomon decides to move the Ark. The other two, in case you might be interested, is Passover and Pentecost. Passover is what the season we're in now. As a matter of fact, today, for another hour or so, <laughs> is Passover. The Jews started celebrating last night at sunset, and it goes until sunset today. And so they would have had their feast last night, and then their day of, of worship and, and not working today. And then we go into unleavened bread celebration. And then on Sunday, we have first fruits, which was when Jesus was resurrected from the, from the dead. Jesus was resurrected on first fruits, which is the first Sunday after Passover. So sometimes it's only 24 hours. Sometimes it's an entire, almost, you know, six days. So this is one of those rare times, and I love it. I don't know why, but I love it because this is when we actually practice resurrection or Easter Sunday on the right day, uh, because it's actually being, being done on first fruits. Um, but this event that's happening here is tabernacle. It's one of the fall festivals. And all of Israel is gathered in Jerusalem at this time to worship God and offer their sacrifices. And Solomon picks that day to move the ark from the tabernacle to the temple. And it's probably a good time because it's, everybody's there. So this is a feast day. It's going to be hard to move in Israel anyway, at Jerusalem at this point anyway. And, but every male is here to celebrate the opening of the temple. At least the ones that are doing what they're supposed to be doing. So this is, you know, and I just wanted to bring that up. The seventh month, this is a big event. Uh, all the people literally, when he says that all the men of Israel assemble themselves, literally means if they're following God's laws that all the men of Israel are there in Jerusalem. Because um, even in Jesus' day, we read the Jesus, we, we find that Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem on the, on the feast days. At least Joseph did. And that's when Jesus went with them when he was 12 years old. He went to them on one of the day, holidays. And that's the time that he got left behind and panicked his parents because they left him behind and thinking that he was with everybody else and then had to go back and find him. It was one of those feast days that they went to the temple to celebrate. And he just stayed and talked. 
I kind of I kind of understand that. I know what it's like to want to just stay and talk, and talk about God. <laughs> so, so we have a big event. This is this is a huge event. They're, they're dedicating the temple, which was be big enough. They're doing it on the Feast of Tabernacles, so that all the men of Israel are there to make this even a better day of worship and celebration. Then it says, and all the elders in, and of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. In verse 4, and they brought the ark of the Lord and the tabernacle of the congregation and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even these did the priests the, and the Levites bring up. So the Levites and the priests are doing their job. This time they're doing it right. They're, they're carrying it with the poles like they're supposed to. All right? And all the Levites are going to be in there doing their jobs of packing up the tabernacle, carrying the tabernacle. It doesn't say they ever set it back up again. But they're carrying it up with them. They're bringing the tabernacle up. And if you remember the tabernacles, that, that huge tent that was made in, Exodus, in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai. All right? So it's been in service now for hundreds of years. I'm sure it's been repaired over that period of time. Uh, but now they're going to take it up. And I imagine they probably took and stored it someplace in the, tabernacle, uh, in the temple. Because this is a special, special piece of uh, worship area. And so I'm sure they stuck it, stuck it away. <laughs> just, it doesn't tell us, but why carry it up to the temple if you're not going to store it someplace? Uh, so they probably stuck it in some room in the tabernacle. <laughs> and verse 5 says, And Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him, and with him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen, that they could not be told nor numbered for multitude. This is, we know that when David brought it, every, every four or five feet they were sacrificing. Here, it says they can't even number the sacrifices, and it doesn't tell us how far they went with each move, but they're offering sacrifices all the way up. And you go, how much is, how much is too many to number? Well, later on, when they get to the tabernacle, they're going to tell us that they sacrificed 26,000 oxen and 220... Excuse me, 22,000 oxen and 122 sheep. They could count that sacrifice. So how much was can't be numbered? I don't know, but we're talking thousands. They can, they can count to 122 sheep. So they're killing a lot of animals on this walk between wherever the ark started to the Temple Mount. Now, offering sacrifices, why? All the joy. Which means the Levites and the priests are busy all the way up the mountain. <laughs> All the way up the hill, they're being busy, not just carrying everything, but having to offer sacrifices every few feet. You know, this thing had to take a long time to make the trip from the entrance of, you know, wherever it was in Jerusalem to the top, up to Mount Moriah, to be set, you know, to be put into the tabernacle where it belonged. And they're offering sacrifices that can't be numbered, and we know that they can number 122,000 sheep. So that means we're much more than that. That's a lot of sacrificing going on. But it is a joyful time. Everybody's excited. God's presence is moving from the ark into this magnificent temple at the top of the hill, which everybody has watched for seven years being built, and see all the gold and magnificence and know that this is where they're going to worship God, no longer in a tent, but in this great big building. And they're excited. They're excited, but I mean, to me, that's a lot of animals. It is. That's a lot of, lot of animals. I mean, 
A lot of animals, a lot of blood. Yeah, a lot of blood, and I mean, you got to clean them and everything. But you know, you got to understand. To us, we don't understand this whole idea of the sacrifice in the first place because we don't sacrifice. Jesus completed the sacrifice. Oh, and you know, this is this is huge. But you know, it's not unusual if you read some of the history books and see what happens when these places sacrificed. When Cortez came into the in, uh, the the uh, Aztec Indians and the Inca Indians, he said it sickened him because the blood flowed off of the off of the uh, ziggurats. It was that much blood from the sacrifices, and it made him sick. You know, and then to know that it was human blood in many of those cases and animal blood made him even sicker, which is one of the reasons he attacked them rather than, you know, and he was doing it in the name of God because of this their sacrifice. But you know, it wasn't right what he did. But he was motivated just because of the blood flow that was going on. We read that in, 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 even in the temple, there was times during the Passover where the, so much blood was, was shed by the, by the sacrifices that it got into the, to the stream down below the, the Jerusalem and made it run, run red. You know, we can't picture that, and I can't hardly picture it. You know, how many animals do you have to kill to have that much blood flow? You know, to go down the hill, all the way down to the river, down to the, to the brook, and turn it, turn it red as it runs is a lot of blood. And these were done, these weren't even sin offerings at this point. This is the Thanksgiving offerings. They were just happy and excited. And we know that it has to be more than, they can count to 122,000, so it has to be more than that. How many more? It doesn't say because it says it can't, it was not counted. So 200,000, 300,000, 500,000? We don't know. There's thousands and thousands of people, and if each one of those men in Israel made just one offering, that's a lot of, a lot of blood being shed. Because the city itself would normally have several tens of thousands of people in it, even in this day. So, and you have all of Egypt, all of Israel, and we know that when they came into the Promised Land, there were 600,000 fighting men. This is 400 years later. There's probably at least twice that many, at least, in 400 years. They've had some battles and everything. So figure there was one million people, all men, all wanting to make sacrifice to honor God. A lot of sacrifice. That's why it says without number. And I'm just one, and I think there were probably more than that. So we have a big celebration, but a lot of blood flowing, a lot of sacrifice, and a lot of you know, Thanksgiving offerings to God. And we're going to see that even worse later on when we get into this. And it says in verse 6, And the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into his place, into the oracle of the house, to the, place, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. And remember that Solomon, when we, in the last chapter, we talked about him making two cherubim, the wings spread out, and they, one wing touched one wall, the other wing touched the other wall, and then two wings reached over the, over the place where the Ark of the Covenant was going to go. And the Ark of the Covenant had cherubim on it already. All right? And so remember, you've got the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat, and then Solomon builds a second set of angels. <laughs> That are putting, their, putting themselves with their wings over the wings of the mercy seat. What was the oracle? Oracle is another name for the Holy of Holies. Uh, why they used oracle, I don't know. 
so we, we see here they bring this into the Holy of Holies. This is the place where once they set it up, only the high priest is going to be able to go in once a year to, to go into the Holy of Holies. And that is with the sacrificial blood of the, of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And he would enter in to sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. This was a great honor to the priest that would do this and a great terror to the priest that had to do this. Because this was, if God didn't accept it, he could be struck dead. So they, they confessed their sins, they made their sacrifice for themselves, and then they got to go in with the blood for the people. And it was, you can almost imagine how terrifying this would be. Did I forget a sin? Yeah. Was there something I forgot to confess? Is there something that's not under the blood? Yeah. Uh, and it's said that they would tie a string around them and there was bells at the bottom of their, their garment that would ring and, and so they were to keep moving the whole time so people would know that they were still alive. And I have never read a verifiable fact on this. I've heard some pastors say uh, that there were six times when people had died, but I've never been able to verify that. So I will never say that. But you know, I, I've always wondered, did, anybody, did any of the high priests ever die? Uh, and I've never found anybody. Josephus kind of indicates that somebody did, but doesn't give us a number and doesn't give us any verifiable fact. Uh, but it was a terrifying thing to go into the very presence of God for these people. They didn't understand God, a God of love. The Jews, even today, do not really believe of a God, in a God of loving care. Even though the scriptures are full of his grace, his mercy on his, on his people, they even still to this day don't see God as a loving God. God is a terror to them just as he is to the Muslims and most of the other people. If you don't know that you're going to be saved, it's hard to have a trust in God. No, they don't believe in the New Testament at all because that's the story of the Messiah. And they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Now they will, when God opens their eyes three and a half years into, the, into their realize, well, you know, we've missed, we've missed everything. And that's going to be a supernatural opening of their eyes at that point in time. But to this day, the Jews as a group do not believe in it. And they are on a works-based system. Since the, since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they have not had a temple to have a sacrifice in for the forgiveness of their sins. So the rabbis are telling them, contrary to everything even the Old Testament tells them, that their good works are going to be good enough to please God. Even though everything in the Old Testament even says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, that everybody who sins is, is, is going to be punished, you know, they still, because they could not have a sacrifice, they had to go, okay, how can, you know, we've got to have a God that we can, can please, so the only way we can please him is by doing good works. They have bought into Satan's lie that good works will please God. And that's what religion is based on. This is why I say over and over, Christianity is not religion. Because in Christianity, we know that no matter how, what I do, good or bad, I don't get into heaven because of what I do. It's only because of what Jesus did. And so when, when you meet people and we share the gospel, and people go, well, you never know if you're going to go to heaven. I'm going, yes, we do. They go, what do you mean? If you don't know Jesus, you're not going to heaven. Well, I'm a good person. I go, doesn't matter. Without knowing Jesus, you do not go to heaven. You know, and that's, that's our answer to them. 
This is why Christianity is not religion. It's not a bunch of rules that we follow that says, if you follow these rules, you're going to be okay with God. Yes, we have rules. And yes, God wants us to follow his rules, but not to please him. It is so that we don't have consequences in our life that are bad. That's why I love John 14, 6. Mm -hmm. And the other thing you were saying, so the Jews now, do they have a Bible that doesn't have the New Testament? It's just the Old Testament? Yes. Yeah, they just have the Old Testament. But we'll, they have what, what we would call the Old Testament is what they have. Oh, so they don't have the New Testament. No, because they don't believe in the New Testament. Even now they don't believe in it. Right. Now, there are Jews that have become completed Jews, but the Jews as a, as a religion do not believe in the New Testament. And the reason, the biggest reason is so much has been done against the Jews in the name of Christ that they don't trust Christians. Hitler claimed to do everything he did under the name of Christ. The Crusades to deliver the Promised Land brutalized the Jews just as much as it brutalized the Muslims. So, they, so the Jews have a long history of Christians abusing them, so they don't really trust it. We're starting to see a slight move as Christians are going and helping Israel a lot. They're starting to be more accepting of Christians, but they don't, they don't so really they trust us. Oh, Jesus? That, no, oh, no. 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 Jesus was just, at best, a good prophet, good prophet yes. in, their, in their minds. The fact that he accepted worship and, and said he was God is no big deal to them, but uh, yeah. they, they don't believe it. Yeah. Um, so, but this is where we're at with this, is that the events going on here is the temple is being set up, the Ark of the Covenant is being put into the Holy of Holies, and then it... Um, What did I want to mark down something here? Okay. Uh, in Second Chronicles 5, 11 through 12, it gives us the same story here that we're talking about, the moving of the ark into the temple. Um, verse 9, it says, They drew out the staves, that the ends of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the oracle, and they were not seen without, and there they are to this day. I'm trying to follow this. It looks like they didn't take the poles completely out of the ark. They just kept pulling them out until they got to the place where they stuck out the, <laughs> out the curtain. And it says that's where they were to this day. Because to me, I've, I would have said, okay, let's take them out completely and lean them against the wall or set them next to it. But that doesn't appear to be what they did. And I had one, one, one uh, uh, commentary I looked at said they did, that they were not allowed to take them out. And I've never read that in the scripture. But apparently they believed it. So they pulled them so they didn't come completely out. They didn't want to lose them or whatever. I don't know. Uh, obviously, when you, you, uh, you as they touched the ark, the staves weren't there. Otherwise, they would have known to use them. I don't know. I don't know anything about that. But you know, they, here, they put them in the ark, and they pull them out so that they hang out the curtains. <laughs> and it says that's where they were to the, to the day of the writing of First Kings. Said that if they touch the ark, they'll die? Yes. Because yeah. God said no one was to yeah. touch it, and Uzziah touched it and died. Now we know, we know that it traveled all over the Philistines, and I don't know if any of them touched it and didn't die or not. I don't, yeah. I don't know. But we know that those who knew better definitely died. What was it? Well, I wonder if David made it a rule. 
it could have been, I had never thought about that, but it is possible that David said, don't take those, don't take those things out. Uh, you know, we're not, we're never going to, we're never going to lose them and nobody's, and everybody's going to realize you, I, who knows. I don't, I don't know, I don't, there's nothing in the scripture about not taking the items out. Uh, but it is something that they, they, for some reason, followed. Uh, and I don't quite understand what happened there and why they stuck them out, <laughs> stuck them so far out that they stuck into the holy place, uh, which meant that the curtain was gonna, wasn't going to be closed completely, so, or the doors weren't going to be composed, which why they put a big curtain on it, I don't know. Uh, and nobody I read had any better answer on it. One of them just said they weren't allowed to take them out, and he didn't, he didn't cite where it came from, where he came up with that conclusion. He touched, he touched it uh, when they were moving it from Gibeon. It, yeah, they put it in a cart, which they weren't supposed to put in. The cart hit a bump, and it wiggled on there, and he reached out to, you know, to stabilize it, and God struck him dead. And David got fearful and left, left the ark right where, you know, right where it was at. <laughs> Uh, in the house for thirty day, uh, for three months, where it was at, the house was blessed. And then David said, "Okay, I'm going to bring it. I'm going to bring it into Jerusalem." And I guess he finally went out and found out how he was supposed to move it, and moved it the right way. Why he didn't do it the right way in the first time, who knows? A lot of times when we don't do things the right way, and then get suffer consequences for not doing things the right way. And Uzzah suffered the ultimate co consequence on it because he died. And he was trying to do the right thing. And it's like, okay, the ark's getting ready to fall. I don't want it to fall. And ended up dead. And this is something that's very serious. Even when we think we're doing the right thing, if it's not what God said to do, it's going to have consequences because of sin. And this is why we have to be very careful not to be thinking the way the world thinks. Get into God's word. Know what he thinks. Know what he says. So that when we step out, it is in his word and not what we think is the right thing. Because Uzzah did what, you know, obviously, I mean, he's not the one to put it up on the ark, up on a cart. He's just saying, I don't want this thing to fall. And he didn't mean to really touch it, I think. He was well, he meant, he meant to because he, he didn't want to do sacrilegious. He wasn't trying to be bad. He was just saying, this thing's going to fall off the ark, or fall off the cart, and I don't want it to fall. And he reaches out to stabilize it, and God strikes him dead. I don't know enough about him. If he was one, of, you know, if he was a true believer and he made a sacrifice, yes, he, you know, he went to heaven. Uh, again, because if we do something wrong, we don't lose our salvation just because we do something wrong. We will suffer consequences for it, up to and including going home. <laughs> but God doesn't take away our salvation. Definitely have problems. You you will suffer 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 problems, and but. You know, the sad thing is, if you don't truly believe in that you're secure with God, then you don't know how to, you don't know what to do. You're going to be paralyzed because everything you do, you're going to be going, gee, if I lose my salvation, have I been good enough? You know, you are saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, and it's, it's very much important that we understand it's all by grace. It's all because of the blood of Christ. And God says we're perfect. Now, we know we're not perfect, and we know we're being justified, but God says we're perfect. And we've got to grab hold of that in our life and say, God, I'm going to accept what you say. And one of the greatest places to be, if you really struggle with this, is read Ephesians 1 and 2 and see what God says about us. 
And because he says we're sealed, we're delivered, we're, we're sanctified, we're justified, and we read down this long list of things that we are, and then we need to be able to say, God, I believe what you say. I believe what you say about me, not what I feel. And that's what's important because I don't always feel saved. There's times when I say Satan's beating me up or I know that I've been bad for, for hours, days, weeks, whatever it might be, and I don't necessarily feel saved, but I have to come back to say and where God says, you are. You are sealed. You are delivered. You are justified. And very important for us to be able to get that way. So going back to Uzzah, I don't know about him enough, but if he was one of John's children, even though he did wrong by touching out, this is very interesting, verse 9. There was nothing in the ark save two tables of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made the covenant with the children of Israel and they came out of the land of Egypt. All right, who remembers what's supposed to be in the ark? The staff. Oh. The staff that bedded. And the pot of manna. The Ten Commandments, the man, a pot of manna and Aaron's staff that bedded. Now, this brings us to a question. Number one, how do they know what's in it? Because they're not supposed to be opening it. All right. But number two, is, this, is the stuff missing? Okay. Which we have nothing in the Bible to tell us where it went to if it's lost. All right. So, well, and who took it? So there's this possible issue on there. Hebrews 9... Four, four tells us that the pot of manna, the rod, the bedded, and the Ten Commandments is was in the Ark of the Covenant. So the question is, did they did they get lost by the time Solomon came along? Did maybe, and this was suggested by a few people, maybe they took the pot of manna and the staff out and put it somewhere else in the temple? I don't really believe that. I tend to believe this is one of those statements where the only thing that mattered in this statement was the law was there which was part of the covenant at Mount Sinai so I think it's one of those things where they didn't list everything that was in the Ark of the Covenant they just listed the most important thing they cared about the actual law representing the covenant now I would not argue that with anybody but you know it's the same thing when Jesus healed ten lepers one one you know, one story tells us he healed ten, uh, uh, two blind men, and another one tells us he had, healed one blind man. Why? Because only one blind man came back to say thank you and was the only one that was carrying in the story. So it is possible that that's what they're meaning here. All right? I can't make a hard stance. It is possible that somebody somewhere went in and stole two things out of the Ark of the Covenant. I, you know, most people die when they touch it, so I don't know how that would have happened. Uh, maybe God told one of the priests to take it. I, you know, we don't know. This one says very clearly that the only thing in it was the, the stone tablets, but I, as I say, this could very easily just be one of those things because when you read it, it goes, there was nothing in the ark save the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel. So the Ten Commandments were part of that covenant, so it could just be the only thing we care about right now is that Ten Commandments that are in there because that is the covenant. I can't take a hard stand on that uh, because it pretty much says there was nothing else in it. My question is, how did they know nothing else was in it? Who opened it? How did they open it? And all of this. So uh, we don't know. You know, who knows what happened or why? Uh, 
I'm going to stick with the idea, though, that they only mentioned the two most important things that they were concerned of at this time. Uh, could be wrong. No, again, I read a couple commentaries on this because it drove me nuts. You know, because if I'm Hebrews, when Paul talks in Hebrews, he's saying all three items are in there. You know, because and yet this verse says very clearly only only the uh, Ten Commandments were in there. So again, what it is, I don't know. Did somebody actually come in and steal two items? Did they move them someplace for safekeeping, or was it just literally they didn't? The only one that cared about was. The, the law and the covenant. I tend to believe that's what it is. Uh, and I'm not going to take a hard stand on that one, because who knows? And when, the, when all the commentators don't know, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to second guess those guys either. Um, I second guess them often enough on my own, so. Uh, but this one, I won't, I won't try to second guess them on this one. Uh, but it is one of those things, because again, we, we do know, and does everybody know what Mount Horeb is? It's another name for Mount Sinai. Oh, it had a lot of different names. <laughs> All the mountains have more than one name. So uh, even the mountain, the Temple Mount is called Moriah, Calvary, Golgotha, the Temple Mount. There's all kinds of names for it, too. So, And the entire city of Jerusalem is also called Zion, which is the, the Mount Zion. Yeah, that, so, it confuses me for a while. I, so, I thought I was talking about Jerusalem, now they're talking about Zion. But yeah, because they're, they're interchangeable. Now remember, this mountain has been very important all the way from the beginning because if you remember, Abraham was told to take his son Isaac to Mount Moriah to offer him up as a sacrifice. So he's going to what will later become Jerusalem and the Temple Mount to offer Isaac. And we've talked about this before, but just to remind everybody, Isaac is probably 33 or 34 years old when he's told, when, when Abraham is told to offer him up as a sacrifice. Yeah, I thought, I always thought he was younger. Yes, everybody does. Like 10, 12. But the, the word they use for him is not for, not, not a child. You know, uh, so he's older, so he's a picture of Jesus going to the mountain. It took him three days to travel there, and Abraham was absolutely sure because Isaac was the promised child and if God wanted him to kill him, just as it says in Isaiah, he was absolutely sure that God would resurrect him. So he has a figurative resurrection because God places a substitute on Mount Moriah for Isaac and they're able to return after three days with Isaac still alive. Pictures, pictures all over the place of Jesus. <laughs> so, and so we have here the commemoration of it. And then in verse 10, and it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house. God's presence oftentimes presented itself as a cloud. Uh, he led the people of Israel through the wilderness by a cloud by day and a pillar of, of fire by night and when they would rest you know if you read the Psalms carefully it says that the cloud no longer stood in front of them but covered them so that they would have shade in the desert and God provided the shade for them but then when they built the tabernacle when they had built the tabernacle, the same exact thing happened. They, Moses finished the tabernacle in Exodus 40, uh, verses 32 through 38, 
He set up the tabernacle, he set it all up, and a cloud descended on it and it said even Moses couldn't go into it because of the brightness and the glory of God that had descended upon the tabernacle. The same thing happens when they finish the temple. They put the mercy seat into the holy place and God descended upon the, the Ark of the Covenant and the temple so that nobody could go do the ministering of him. Powerful thing. And you know, for us as Christians, God's glory dwells in us. Which I've talked about this so many times, you know, when we think about this, how many times do we have friends, relatives, uh, old friends especially, and, and that, that just don't want us around, and we don't have to say a word about God, they just get convicted because we bring God everywhere we go. And this is important. The world gets to the place where they get convicted just because we're there. We're not even talking about what they're doing. And we just bring God into their presence and God either draws them if they're his or repels them if they're not his. And the Holy Spirit is there trying to draw everybody. But, you know, your lost friends will get, you know, I don't know if many people remember, but sometimes your lost friends get mad at you because you haven't said a word, but, you know, you're just not the same. You know, you're different or you think you're better. You haven't even said a word, but you think you're better than us. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that is God filling us and convicting them. And, you know, then we open our mouth and kind of, con- kind of in, you know, validate, validate what, they're, what they're feeling in the first place. And even if, even if we're not being critical, we just talk about God. You know, and I love going into around non-Christians and just talking about God and how good God is. And you, then you get to, well, you, you just think you're better. No. You think God loves you more. No. He loves you too if you just let him. <laughs> You know, but this is the key. We bring God into the situation and people need to see God because that is what people are really looking for. And when they look at our lives, they need to see God and they need to see the love of God and not the condemnation, not the, not the, not the bitterness because condemnation doesn't bring them close to God. It doesn't bring any of us closer to God. If I feel like I'm always being criticized and condemned, I don't want to be anywhere near those people. I don't want to be going to do God if that was the way he is. Now, I am going to be convicted of my sin and have to repent, but condemnation, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because he has forgiven our sin and his goal is not for us to get condemned. His, his goal is for us to repent of our sin and come back into fellowship. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Very important for us to understand, when we get condemned, that is guilt. And we should not, as Christians, suffer guilt. We get, we get convicted, we turn to God and say, God, I am sorry, I repent, and ask for forgiveness, and then take our punishment. <laughs> But condemnation is that fear of God and drives us away. And if you've ever been there where you start going into sin and you go, well, God, I can't get anywhere near you or your people because I just feel so bad, that's condemnation. That's not conviction at that point. You know, and I've seen it over and over where people draw away from the church because they feel condemned instead of drawing to God's people and to Christ for forgiveness. And we need to be careful as Christians that we don't draw away, but also that we don't push people away 
through condemnation. Our job is to love people, not to love their sin, not even to say that their sin is okay, but to love them and let them know that God loves them. Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. Because he was talking to a people that were used to being condemned by the scribes and Pharisees. You're not good enough. If you were good enough, God would be treating you okay, but you're not good enough. And they constantly criticized them and made them feel bad. And Jesus kept telling the people, you know, do what they say, but don't act like them. Okay? Jesus commended them. You know, they're, they're trying to do good. Be obedient to following God's laws, but don't get so wrapped up that you condemn others. Because we cannot condemn others because we can't keep God's rules either. And this is important. You know, I may be able to keep two or three of his rules, but I'm not keeping all ten of his major rules, and there's, and there's 613 rules in the Old Testament to obey. I can't even keep the, I can't even keep the ten main ones that everybody knows. You know, and I have trouble keeping one or two of those. So I cannot allow myself to condemn other people. Uh, all through the Old Testament. You, you, you have to be a rabbi to follow them. I'm going to take the rabbis at face value that there's 613 of them. I just worry about the 10, that, the 10 that everybody knows that we can't keep. Now I can give you a lot more than just those 10 because I've studied. But we can't obey the Ten Commandments, so I'm not worried about the other 603 of them. Uh, but, you know, we need to be careful because if we're going to condemn others, we need to condemn ourselves. And if we're going to want grace and mercy on ourselves, we must give grace and mercy to other people and forgiveness. Because we want, we want all that from God, and God's going to look at us. And Jesus said, if you don't, forgive other, you don't forgive others, I'm not going to forgive you. So the first thing we need to do is forgive. Love, be kind. If we're saved, you're not forgiven. I think it moves more into the rewards for not for not forgiving. We're going to be saved. We're forgiven as far as that goes. But when is when do we really start getting out of out from under condemnation? Is when we know that we're forgiven, and then we come out of con- condemnation and draw close to God. If we're not under that con- if we're under condemnation, we don't want to be near God even as Christians. So he's going to say, you're not forgiven in this area and have the consequences of that. And the consequences of not having forgiveness are what we put up on the, on the PowerPoint every week. You know, if you don't forgive people, you are under bondage. You know, they're not under bondage. You're under bondage. You don't like to see them. You don't want to be around them. They make you feel bad. You feel guilty. And you're looking at them and going, you're under bondage more than they are. They might not even know you're not forgiving them. I've, I've seen this happen so many times where somebody's been mad at somebody for years and decades, and they, and they, finally, go, they finally get under conviction by God. They go to God and ask for forgiveness. They go to the person and say, please forgive me for doing, for doing this. And they go, what are you talking about? They forgot it long ago. You know, and people will say, well, how do you forgive? Very simple. You forgive, number one, but you stop dwelling on it. You stop thinking about it. And if you stop thinking about something, you forget about it effectively. You know, and my example in this, how many of us remember what we ate last Wednesday night for dinner? <laughs> it's not that important, unless it, unless it was a big event. You know, I went out on my anniversary, or I went out to a restaurant. You know, but just a random night 
last week and say, what did you have for dinner? Uh, I don't know. Why? If you really were to think about it and dwell, you know, and concentrate on it, you probably could remember. But why do we not remember? Because we don't rehearse it. And it's not important. And it's not important, and we don't keep remembering and remembering. Well, why do we not forgive people? Because we keep dwelling on what they did, and we keep thinking about it. Why can't we do that? It becomes part of us. It becomes, we just we remind ourselves over and over and over again. And then we take it to the next step. We start talking to other people about them. Now, and I love asking people, how many of us know somebody we're mad at that we have never met because one of our friends or relatives have told us about how bad they are? You know, we don't even know the person and, we're not, and we don't like them because of what we're told about them. And if we met them without knowing who they were, we would probably like them and wonder, and then find out, well, they're not as bad as that person has been talking about. We need to be very careful that we don't do that. First, we've got to get stop thinking about it. Then we've also got to shut our mouth and quit telling other people about how bad they are. <laughs> yeah. And yet, that's what we like to do. You know, I gotta, just got to tell you about this person. This is how bad they are. This is what they've done to me. Now, and then there's that whole idea of we want them punished. All right? Now, to get it out of that is actually reverse order. We've got to stop wanting them punished, got to stop talking about it and stop thinking about them, period. So we've got to kind of go back the other direction because we've got to get to the place where no matter what they've done, I don't want to see them punished because what is the true punishment for that? If they're not saved, it's hell. Do I really want anybody to go to hell? You know, in my case, I don't want to see, I don't even, and I've shared with you, I, have, I suffer from gout pain. I don't want anybody to suffer from gout. And if I don't want somebody to suffer from gout, why would I want anybody to go to hell? And I don't. I, I want to see everybody go to heaven. Now, I know they're not, because there are going to be many that reject. But is our attitude so such a place that we say, God, I want them to be forgiven, even though they've hurt me, even though they've hurt others, I want you to forgive them. That doesn't mean their consequences aren't going to fall on them. There's still going to be consequences for their action. But I also don't want to see the consequences. I know a man who suffered greatly and his family suffered because of consequences of his sin. And I wasn't happy for what happened to him. Matter of fact, I know two men in that, in that thing. Both of them suffered greatly because of their sin. Was I happy because of their sin? One of them directly affected me. But I wasn't happy to see him suffer the way he suffered. It's like, God, and I go, God, it had to be what you, you know, you knew what it had to be, and had me, but I'm not happy because I had somebody come to me and talk to me about how that guy had suffered and go, well, he got what he deserved, and I'm going, I'm not happy with that. I don't, I don't, didn't want to see that happen to him. And it kind of blew the guy away, you know, so I had a chance to witness to him. You know, because people don't understand. Jesus went to the cross not condemning us, but loving us. Well, that was his parable. That was his parable of the of the servant who was forgiven by the king of what would be trillions of dollars, and that man went out and and put somebody in prison for owing him a couple days' wages, and then he went back in and said, "Okay, you you showed no mercy. You, you know, you're going into prison now." Uh, so for us as Christians, we have been forgiven of so much that we're virtually obligated by 
by that forgiveness to forgive others. Now, we have a hard time because it's us that got hurt. Our pride got hurt, so God, because my pride is hurt, they don't deserve to be forgiven. You know, God could have said the same thing. You guys hurt me. And we did. Mankind has hurt God. And yet, right from the very beginning, he offered a sacrifice for Adam and Eve and said, your sins are covered. So, so when he sacrificed the animals to make clothes for them, did that save Adam and Eve? It was the forerunner of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. It meant the same thing as it did all through the Old Testament. It wasn't the blood of the animal that covered their sin. It was the picture of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. All people are saved because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure they were taught a lot more about the sacrifice than just, I'm killing an animal. Uh, because it, that sacrifice system has gone on from that and Satan has done what he's always done he's counterfeited over time Jesus God started it and said this is my the son of my blood it's a picture of the son of my blood the blood of my son <laughs> uh, and this is what forgives you and then Satan has taken it out to all kinds of wrong sacrifices so when they sacrifice they have to have blemished unblemished they can't uh, yeah, be unblemished so they can't just pick out any animal. They gotta have They're to take the best lamb and yeah. best animal it's from their flock. That many, that's a lot of animals they had to find. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm sure at various times, it, it was, it, ideally it should be the best animal you had in your, your flock or your herd, which should be the unblemished one. You didn't go out and find the mangiest sheep that you could find or the, or the cow that was on its last leg and say, well, this one's a good one to give to God. Uh, Malachi tells us later on that God gets upset at that. He goes, you think, you think God wants the blind and the maim? Go, go give it to your governor and see how he treats it. You know, how, how pleased he will be. You know, and God is so much higher. But our job as Christians is to love others. To show them the love that we are shown. It's hard. You know, Jesus said even further to love our enemies. And we know that's the easiest thing in the world to do. Love our enemies. You know, it's... it's Fairly easy to love those who love us in return, but to love our enemy? And yet that's the love that God shows us. We were his enemy when Jesus died for us. We were his enemy when we accepted his sacrifice. Because we were in sin against God, and we finally accept his sacrifice. So we, as his children, are to show the same love, the same forgiveness, the same grace to those that do us harm. And it is not an easy thing. It gets easier the more we do it. It gets easier the more we practice it. And God keeps putting in harder and harder people to love and forgive into our life as we learn to practice it. But he's saying, are you willing to show love? And people are looking for that true love that is unconditional. You know, as human beings, we are used to giving conditional love and conditional forgiveness. I will love you as long as you give me something in return. I will like you as long as you're nice to me. I will love you as long as you're nice to me. But as soon as you're mean and, mad and bad to me, I'm not going to love or like you anymore. And we need to be careful with that. It's easy, it's easy to fall into. It's easy to fall into, but the example that Jesus gave us was to love our enemies. He's on the cross, and what's his prayer? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know if I could ever do that. <laughs> Stephen's... 
Stephen's prayer was the same thing. They're stoning him for the name of Christ. And what does he see? Father, forgive them. I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. Father, forgive them. They're hitting me with these rocks. Forgive them. Is it really easy to do? Absolutely not. But is it what God wants us to do? Absolutely. When you forgive, you have to give them love also. Yeah. Well, it's part of love. It's part of mercy. It's part of forgiveness. But it is also showing them God. Because people need to see that love. And that is what wins people in the long run. If we return hate for hate, blow for blow, angry words for angry words, we're just showing them that we're no different from the rest of the world. When we start showing them love and forgiveness and kindness, we're showing them that we have a different way of living, a different way of life. And that impresses people. In the long run, and they may reject it at first. They want to make sure that it's real. But when they see that it is actually real, it draws them because they're going, I don't understand this. This is not what people do. This is not what I would do. Why are these, why are these Christians being so strange? They're forgiving. They're loving. They, they care. They're willing to do things uh, above and beyond. And people eventually get drawn. They might get mad and angry at first and test the limits of it. Because that's the first thing they're going to do. Is, it, is this really real or is this a game? And then they start by getting worse. Now, they start by getting meaner and nastier. And what they're looking at is, is your forgiveness, is your love really real? Is it really real no matter what I do? Which means when we fail, we have to do the really, really, really easy thing and to ask them to forgive us. And I'm being very facetious with that. It's very hard to ask the lost person to forgive us because we, yeah, were, we, were, we were evil. Especially when they're still yelling at you. <laughs> but you know, that alone... That alone is what can break somebody's heart. I am sorry that I yelled at you. I am sorry that I reacted with you. Please forgive me. I want to show God's love to you even more. And they're worse than me. Yeah. And then we, do, we keep doing it over and over again. You know, one of, in my dad's testimony, the thing that really got him is he watched a friend of his who was a Christian who was really ministering to him who fell and did something really stupid. And he finally went to my dad and he asked him to forgive him for being a bad testimony. That was one of the things that broke my dad's heart. He didn't get saved that that day, but it was something he still remembered forever, that this crazy Christian who did just what he would have done anyway actually asked for forgiveness for doing what he would have done you know, and being a bad testimony. You know, the power of the humility of us being saying, yes, I'm human, but it's not where I want to be is very powerful with our, with our, with our friends and neighbors and and those. Do you have to go out everybody? No, but especially your friends and your family. When you have a bad example, we need to ask them for forgiveness. The hardest thing for parents to do is ever ask their kids for forgiveness. You know, and we have to ask our kids for forgiveness for a lot of things that we've done. But we also need to do it with other family members. You know, especially the lost family members. Because we're bound up. And even if they're not lost and we lost our temper, we need to ask them for forgiveness because we didn't live up to the way God wants us to be. Is it easy? No. It is hard. It is hard to have fallen down and have to admit that, you're, that you've messed up and that you were a bad example. But 
If you've ever had anybody do it to you, you know how powerful that example is when they go, you know, I really messed up, I am sorry. You know, and you're going, wow, you were just human. But at, the, at least it tells people you have a higher standard that you're trying to live up to. And even though you're not there, that standard is very important to you. And it's very important to us to go to family members and say, I, was, I, I messed up, I, I'm sorry. First we go to God, <laughs> then we go to them, and then we ask, and, we, and in the process we ask God, for God to strength to not, not fall again. But people are looking at it, because one of the things, if they think you think you're perfect, and even if you try to pretend you're perfect, they'll, they'll number one know that you're not, but they'll also think, well, I can't live up to that. The world knows that they can't live up to being per perfect, and without Christ, we can't either. And when we fail, we need to let them know, I messed up, God's forgiven me. Because then they know that they can live to that standard. You know, I know that I'm going to mess up, so if I, can, if I can be forgiven and still walk with God, it gives them the idea that there's something. Because if they think, we, if they, if they think we're perfect, and because they don't know us sometimes all that well, and they don't know what goes on, if they think that we think we're perfect and, they, and, they, and that's expected, people are going to reject Jesus because they know they can't be, they can't be perfect and, and they don't know why we have the strength to be as good as we are. Even though we're not perfect, they don't understand why we have the strength to, to, to hold up against sin. They don't know it's the power of God in us that lives through us to be, be that way. And until they get to see all of this, they won't want God because they're going to think, I can't live that way. And we've all heard that statement. Well, I can't be, I can't be like you. I can't, I, can't, I can't live that way. I've used that statement. <laughs> <laughs> Most people have used that statement at some point in their life, especially before they get saved. You know, so our goal is to, when we mess up, especially with family and friends, ask for forgiveness. Humble yourself and ask for forgiveness. You've asked from God, ask for, ask for them. If you did it righteously, that's okay. If you didn't do it righteously, <laughs> this is the thing about any time when we respond to people. I have said this over and over again. If I'm angry because you hurt me, I'm probably not going to be angry without being sinful because my pride has been hurt. If I'm angry that you hurt somebody else, I might be able to stay <laughs> without sin. Jesus went into the temple with a whip and changed the, chased the money changers out of the temple, and I'm sure that he was angry. But he was angry because of what they were doing to his father's house, not because of what they did to him. So he could stay in without sin, even though he's chasing them around with a whip and getting, saying, get out of my father's house, you've made it a den of thieves. So if we're angry, and I personally believe that if we're angry about something happening to me, I can't do it without sin because I am angry about my pride, my, my reputation that's being hurt. And when that happens, very hard to not sin. And I'm not sure that we can because I'm upset that I got hurt. If I'm upset that somebody else got hurt, I might, <laughs> and I say might, be able to do it without sin. So if they deserve it and it's right and you stayed without sin, you're okay. But your love better show out in all of that. Spanking our kids or disciplining our kids in love is discipline and good. Even though the kids may feel painful and get angry at us, if it's done right and in love, it's discipline to teach them not to do it again. 
my dad was very good and I even learned the same thing. My dad always told us, go up to your room and think about what you did for a while. I use the same terms with my kids. Why? Because I never wanted to spank my kids while I was angry. I never wanted it to be me satisfying my anger against them. I wanted it to be discipline. So I would tell them, go think about what you did while I calmed down and figured out exactly how I was going to punish them as a punishment and discipline, not as just pain. Now that might mean a spanking. It might mean you know uh, uh, things taken away from them. But it was whatever God put on my heart as I cooled down in, in prayer. And this is why somebody may need it. But again, how do we do it still has to be important. Is it discipline or is it an attack? Because you deserve, you, know, you deserve it or you hurt me. So, and I'm not saying that we don't ever deal with things. If somebody hurts us, Jesus did not say we're to be you know, carpets walked all over. But he did say that we are to do things in love and we're to be forgiving. And just because we forgive somebody doesn't mean we allow them to keep doing things over and over again. If somebody proves that they're a liar and not trustworthy, then we can forgive them without trusting them. All right? If somebody has cheated me, you know, once I might forgive them and let them do it, you know, and maybe, you know, treat them carefully, but they do it two or three times, I'm not going to trust them. They're going to have to prove that they're trustworthy after that. I'm going to forgive them, but I'm not giving them the keys to the safe and the keys to the building and, and everything else so they can steal, you know, steal the place blind because they proved that they're not trustworthy. I'm going to forgive them, but I'm not going to just say, oh, oh yeah, you're a thief, you like to steal. Here, have the keys to the church. <laughs> We're not going to do that. Uh, you know, uh, so we need to keep cautious. But forgiveness also means that we give, we, we take chances. God takes chances with us all the time. He allows us to keep doing the same mistakes all the time. How many of us, and it's everybody in the room, have a sin that we just can't seem to get over? <laughs> you know, all of us have at least one sin that we just can't seem to get over. At least one. You know, God still says, I forgive you and lets us keep going on with him, even though we have that one area in our life, or many areas in our life, where we just can't seem to get over and be victorious. And yet, how many times do we look at somebody and say, nope, not going to trust you anymore, not going to do anything for you, I'm not going to forgive you, and God, and God constantly wants to keep reminding us, you know, well, what about this, this, this area in your life that you have that I keep forgiving you on, why aren't you willing to forgive them? Now, if they're hurting somebody or hurting us, then yes, stay away from them. Don't give them opportunities to hurt you. But if it's a small thing, you know, be very cautious with it. Be it's very cautious thing, with it. I forgive her because of what I did, but she's not going to forgive me. But again, it doesn't but really remember. It doesn't really matter that they don't forgive you. Oh, okay. Okay. My oh. job as a Christian is to forgive others. But I just felt bad that she. But let's put it, let's, let's turn this from God's perspective. He forgives us. Do we always accept what he says? And do we always accept what he sends our way as a gift from him without murmuring and complaining? Uh, so it's the same process. They're not being nice to us. They're not forgiving back. But you know, how many times do we go to God, even though I know that all things work together for good, that God is in absolute control and I complain about what comes my way? 
Uh, we want to be careful with that because we're doing to God what we get mad at others doing to us. Maybe not to the same extreme, but we're doing this, we do the same thing to God and yet he forgives us. You know, we can all come up with the reasons why we shouldn't. You know, they, they're not forgiving back, they're not loving back, but neither were we when Christ died for us. Neither were we after we're saved in many cases. You know, so we want to be careful in how we deal with others. You know, they put Jesus on a cross, and yet he forgave them. Now, he did know, of course, that he was going to rise again, but so are we. The worst they can do is kill us, and we'll go to heaven, and our body will be raised again. And that's actually the best that could happen to us, but I'm saying, as far as yeah. they're concerned, the worst they can do is kill us. You know, so are we going to be at peace with whatever God sends our way and show love and kindness and forgiveness to people? Or are we going to grumble and gripe and complain and not forgive people and put ourselves in bondage whenever they're around because we can't even stand thinking about them because of oh, whenever we think about them, all we think about is the bad. Dale Tackett in the Truth Project had talked about when we look at the lost world, we need to consider one thing. They are prisoners. They are prisoners to sin. They cannot do, help what they do because the flesh is going to tear them down. We at least have the strength of Christ to crucify our flesh and live in his strength. And yet we tend to think of and act like we're still prisoners of the, of the sin nature. Even though God has given us victory over it, we oftentimes slip back into being prisoners of the sin nature, acting just the way the world does, not the way God wants us to do. And it's human nature, I understand. I'm the same way, I, I fall into it at the same time, just as everybody else. But we need to be able to understand, they're prisoners, they cannot help what they're doing. Without Christ, they cannot help but be a sinner. We, as Christians, are sinners, even when we shouldn't be because we've got his power to keep us from it, we still sin. How can we expect sinners without the, the uh, power of God in them to be anything less than a sinner. And this is why I say over and over again, I am never surprised when a sinner sins. Okay, so that means I'm not surprised when anybody sins. All right, I do not have this high expectation of people being perfect. Do I wish that they would be? Do I wish that I could be? Yes. But when somebody doesn't do something that I wanted them to do or expect them to do or follow God, I am not disappointed because, or not angry because I knew that they were. I may be disappointed, especially with, when Christians don't live that way. But I'm also not going to be angry and disappointed enough to send, a, you know, to, to oh, nope, 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 don't want you around anymore. Because I know that all sinners sin. We are born sinners. We are going to sin. And when I deal with the lost world, I have no expectation of them ever doing anything good. Because they're sinners. They are just being who they are. Like I said, I'm a little more disappointed when Christians sin, but I'm still not surprised because I know that Christians are sinners. I'm not surprised when I, I'm not disappointed and surprised when I sin, even though I get mad at myself because I sin and I know that I shouldn't sin, but yet I know that I'm a sinner. Even though God has come into my life and, and cleansed me and is sanctifying me, 
I know that I'm going to sin, and if I know that I'm going to sin, how can I be upset that any other Christian sins, or even worse, that any other world sins? I expect the world to be mean. I expect them to be sarcastic. I expect them to be unloving, unforgiving, and downright nasty at times, because that's what they are. I'm more disappointed when Christians act that way, but I'm also not completely surprised because they're sinners. So we need to be able to say, because we're sinners, I want to forgive you because I know that you're bound up. You're not, you're not in freedom. All right, we're going to end there. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the celebration that they had serving you. And Lord, we talked about all these different things that I don't know how we got on to tonight, but thank you for those, Lord. Help us learn to walk the way you want us to learn walk. Teach us your love for others. Teach us to forgive. Teach us that what you show us is what we're to show others. And we just ask you to bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says... The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.